Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot you can find a therapist that you can connect with their resource is thousands of therapists well-trained and experienced you can keep looking until you find someone that you click with they have customized online therapy they do offer videos but they also offer phone and live chat sessions so you don't even have to be seen you can only be heard what are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Dan McAdams at, at Northwestern University, he's a personality psychologist. He has a theory that says that we forge our identities through narrative. And I think that's interesting, and I think it's largely accurate. But when we think about our lives as narrative, we have to ask the question, you know, are we in these narratives? Are we the author? Or are we the character? Right. And the answer is yes. Right, 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 right. Part of life, part of life is teasing that out. everybody. Today's guest has authored seven books. Five of them have reached the New York Times bestseller list. He's an expert in social science, and he writes about human motivation, business, and creativity. He was also chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore from 1995 to 1997. His new release, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, is out now, and it's wonderful. Please welcome Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink to stage, please. Daniel, can we have you to stage? Hi. Woohoo. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, you guys. I'm glad to be here. I have to tell you before we start talking about your new book, your book, A Whole New Mind, was so important for me. My son is dyslexic as am um, I. And I didn't know that I was dyslexic being raised in the seventies. It wasn't a, an actual thing. And so yeah. when my son was diagnosed, it was just illuminating for me. I was, yeah. I, I was shocked that there was a name for what I was and how I thought. And, and I found it super empowering. And then I read your book and I was like, yay. <laughs> I just think well, it's great. Such a great book. Before we get into the the new book, I just wanted to talk, yeah. if you could, tell people a little bit about um, the difference between a right brain thinker and a left brain thinker, moving from the logical and linear into the more inventive and empathic and conceptual age. Can we just talk a little bit about that? Of course. Of course. That book uses a metaphor of the brain to understand what's happening in the world of work. And as you're saying, Mary Lee, our brains are divided in, brains have two hemispheres, left hemisphere and right hemisphere. Now, it's not quite right that people are inherently left brain or right brain. We use sides of our brain for everything that we do, but there is a division of labor 
in those two sides of the brain. And the left side deals with things that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. The right side deals with things that are more contextual, big picture, uh, less sequential, more contextual. And so I think that offers a pretty powerful metaphor for what's going on in the world of work, which mm -hmm. is that the sorts of abilities that used to matter the most, which were these logical linears, think of them as like spre as, as spreadsheet SAT abilities. Those abilities still matter, but they matter relatively less because machines do them really well and you can actually find someone elsewhere in the world to do it for even cheaper. Right. Um, and so what really matters are the things that computers, that the machines can't do that well, which is artistry, inventiveness, empathy, big picture thinking, mm -hmm. um, coming up with something the world didn't know it was missing. Those are the abilities in a very, very hard-headed way that now matter most. What I also found really interesting is beyond the business aspect of it is the different stages of life. You spoke to when you get older, it is less about monetary or that industrial age or information age thinking and more about the purpose and intrinsic motivation and the meaning of your life, right? Have you found that these couple of years, what we've been faced with, I'm, I'm, I, we call it the great pause. We don't necessarily name it as COVID or pandemic, but they're focusing on their life in a different way through a different lens and less so much about the facts of all things, but more about the meaning of all things. Have you found that? Maybe. Um, I, I think that what's happened is, is, that, is that people are reflecting more because they've been forced to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when they reflect, I think that a lot of their reflections end up exactly as you say, being about meaning and purpose and love and significance rather than about did I um, get a you know a seven percent return on my investments last year mm -hmm. or eight percent return on my investments did mm -hmm. I boost my income by four percent or by five percent I mean I think that the fact that mortality was in the air played a big role too so people end up thinking about what their life is about that's a comment on human nature or do you find that it is truly a chosen field or an inspired field, this more artistic way of looking at things? Well, I mean, so are you, so are you talking about the, the COVID or are you talking about this shift in skills or both? Both like on a, on a macro, you know, uh, view, I find like through history, when we are pushed human nature, when pushed against the wall and have to make a decision, we then evolve. Right. And I find that we are at that point of history again, that sort of renaissance of being more creative and finding ways out of this, as opposed to two plus two is four. It's how do we look outside the box to expand the box and grow and evolve? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is, I, I, I actually look at it more as a both and like what, like this book, mm -hmm. A Whole New Mind, it doesn't say that that facts don't matter. It says that facts matter a lot. It doesn't say that math doesn't matter. It says that math matters a lot. What it says is that um, spreadsheet and SAT skills are not the only things that matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the truth of the matter is, is that if you don't have those spreadsheet SAT skills, you're in a world of hurt. Right. Um, you have to have you have to have both. The point, right. the point is, is that you want to have a fuller account of human thinking and human potential. And that includes both those SAT spreadsheet skills, which again are necessary, but they're just no longer sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's these other kinds of abilities that 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 in this country, especially we, we've overlooked and undervalued that actually have begun to matter much more than I think most people realize. Do you think the education system is going to start changing because they're really not teaching to that? They take away music, they take away art, they take away all of yeah. those things that 
really are important. I mean, I've, I, the, the, the education system is a, is, a, is a mix of factors because I actually think that teachers understand this. Mm-hmm. Um, but teachers, teachers don't set education policy. Legislators set education policy. And most right. legislators haven't walked into a school since they were kids. Right, and right. they know very little about the ground truth of what's happening in American education. Um, right. The other side of it is that, you know, I think that throughout American education, there are legions and legions and legions of hidden heroes who are doing incredible things. Uh, and we don't hear enough about them. We hear only about the, we hear only about the the, the dysfunction. And I, and I, but I, that that said to your Stephanie's earlier point about this moment that we're in, um, um, I, I think that the last two years have been terrible for kids in school, really bad. Um, and um, and we're going to be trying to clean up that mess for a very long time. Can I ask you about your process when you're writing your book? You have to use that left and that right brain because you have extraordinary storytelling skills. But of course, there's all these facts that you have to gather in order to make each chapter and have the fluidity and continuity of your book. Mm-hmm. Is there a side of your brain, though, that you tend to to gear to, lean to? I don't really think about it that way. I just think, of, I, I, honestly, I, I, I think about it in terms of like getting the work done. Okay. Uh, I have I look at writing my, my so-called process in a in an extraordinarily reductive and blue collar way. My, okay. I have a job to do and I come into this office where I'm talking to you from at you know 830 in the morning on writing days and I have to crank out 800 words. And however my mind and body manages to do that, I don't know, but that's my job. How, what is it? Three days a week? Five days a week? It, no, well, it depends. It depends on it depends on where I am in a, in a project. Um, mm. You know, when I'm when I'm actually working on a book, it's every day. And so what I will do is I will carve out some time here. I, I will, you know, not bring my phone into the office. Mm. I will not turn on my email. And my job is my most important job that day is to create whatever, how many words it is, you know, 500, 800, something like that. And I won't do anything until I hit that number. Mm. And then I'll show up the next day and do it again and show up the next day and do it again and show up the next day and do it again. I actually never honestly think about what side of my brain is doing the the labor. All I care about is the labor. All yeah. I care about is getting those words on the page and showing up and doing it again and showing up and doing it again. Creating a Broadway show or a live theatrical event is similar in that, like you said, that blue collar work ethic. We show show up at a certain time. That's right. It bleeds into our personal life. I will attest to that. I will say that, you know, you you don't just close the door of your home and everything shuts off. It'll still, you'll be inspired by a thought or you have to write things down or you'll say, oh, I'll bring that in tomorrow. Absolutely. 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 But yeah, it, exactly, there is exactly. a freedom within that boundary of knowing when you need to be there, when Bingo. you're leaving, where your Bingo. lunch is. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden Bingo. you can expand and play because you do have the parameters with which to work. Absolutely. This yeah. is the paradox that structure is liberating. Yeah. Right. And what do you do if you ever run into those days where you sit down at the computer and those 800 words refuse to, <laughs> to come and get on the page for you? Do you have anything I, that you do to I help stay open longer. that up? You do. I stay longer. I put my ass in the seat and keep going. Did you always have that sort of self-discipline, even as a as a younger being? It's basically one of the things that I discovered as I progressed in life is that uh, innate talent is overrated, and mm. showing up and doing the work is underrated. You know, I don't I don't do a massive number because I'm not that fat, fast of a writer, but let's say that I do, 
let's say that my number is 800 that day. If it, some days I'll hit it by 11 a.m. Um, mm. Other days I won't hit it by one, but I won't leave. I won't do anything else until I hit that number because that's my job that day. Uh, because if I sat around waiting to be inspired, I would not get a word on the page. Right. That's me. But there are other people who have different processes and you have to respect you have to you have to you have to respect that. I do I do think that there are general principles though. I think that you you want you don't want to be overly rigid, but you don't want to be overly loose either. You want to find somewhere along that loose tight spectrum that is important. I think mm -hmm. and, and I think people will locate themselves at different spots along that spectrum. Um, but the fact that this works for me might be instructive to some people, but certainly not to all people. As a political speechwriter, when the time frame could have been different and you're under fire, you know, there's a huge uh, event that has happened and you need to write something within whatever it may be, two yeah. hours or so for a press yeah. conference. How yeah. did that how did that adrenaline and energy kind of infuse or inform your work? So, so when you're in that kind of circumstance, I do think that at some level, your 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 endocrine system takes over your adrenaline pumps and your you have the right amount of stress in that moment and you, you can attain some degree of focus and you do the you do the best you can. The other thing is that in, in all of these kinds of endeavors, one of my guiding phrases comes from Lauren Michaels. And, and he said um, he said, we don't go on because we're ready. We go on because it's 1130. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain times in certain realms where it's 1130. Do you prefer one to the other? Do you prefer a little bit of that adrenaline and stress where you have to get it done or no? I don't know. I, I don't like that every day. Yeah. Definitely don't like that every day. Yeah. Um, Your adrenals would be shot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Every once, yeah. In a while, every once in a while is cool. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about your new book. The Power of <laughs> Let's regret. talk about regret. Dun, dun, I want to talk dun. about regret. Demystify regret. How, how did you come up with this idea? Why this book? Why regret? What brought it on? Well, I mean, part of it, a big part of it was, is that I was dealing with regrets of my own. Um, and, you know, I, as I've said, you know, in other contexts, this is a, this is not a book I would have written in my thirties. Um, I don't think I had enough mileage on me. Uh, but in my fifties, it felt kind of inevitable. I, you know, I had that, that, that moment where I look backward and like, holy crap, there's room back there. Like, um, or even writing books, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, that shocks me. Um, but then I look forward and say, okay, I got some time, I hope to do more work, more, you know, contribute more. And so I just wanted to reckon with some of my own regrets. And one of the things that I found is that when I talked about my regrets with people, they really leaned in, they leaned in in a way that was different from what you would expect in this world where we say, you're not supposed to talk about your regrets. You're not supposed to have regrets. You're supposed to be positive all the time. You're supposed to always move forward. And, and what I found was that when I very sheepishly mentioned my own regrets. People were engaged and they wanted to share theirs. This is something. So, so I felt like there was this pent up demand to talk about these sorts of things and to mm. reckon with these sorts of things. And, and, and as I did more research, you know, I found that this emotion of regret is potentially our most transformative emotion. And mm. what, what's more is that I found that we don't do a very good job in helping people contend with negative emotions. People either ignore them and say, okay, that's not real. I don't care, blah, 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 you know, drown it out. Or they get completely captured by them and they wallow in them. And both of those are really bad ideas. Um, and it's not necessarily individual's fault. It's just that nobody, is, nobody really teaches us how to deal with negative emotions. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think even when you talk about regret, one of the things that kept coming to me when I was 
listening to the book is that sometimes yeah. when I voiced a regret, it made me feel that I was negating any positive that came out of the experience. Huh. And so it's very hard for me to voice a regret because then I think, yeah, but this, this, and this came out of it. And if I didn't do that, then I wouldn't have this. And so I don't know if that's overthinking, but I wondered if other people, if you came across that with other people. No, it's not just you. It's it's not overthinking. It's recognizing that that both things can be true. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you the most common example of that. Um, The most common example I think is, and it's a, and it's a psychologically healthy way to deal with certain kinds of regrets, which is to do what logicians call a downward counterfactual and say, you know, at least, you know, this is a bad decision, but at least something good happened of it. And the most common example of that was bad marriages. Just to give your listeners some context, among the research that I did for this book is that I collected thousands and thousands and thousands of regrets from people. At this point, we're up to 19,000 regrets from people in 109 wow. countries. And, and one of the, one of the regrets that you hear is this, and it's almost all from women, actually. Um, I regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. Right. And so the thing is, is like, you can have that regret and relish the fact that you have these two great kids. Right. So you, one doesn't invalidate the other. Exactly. You you can, it, 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 that the, at least, at least I have these two great kids take some of the sting out of it, but you actually want to draw, extract a lesson from that regret. What did you do wrong? Did you not know yourself well enough? Did you, right. um, did you not, did you jump into things too quickly? Were you too rash? Were you um, not alert to certain warning signs? And and you so so leaning into that regret, not wallowing in it, not ignoring it, but actually disclosing it, talking about it, and then drawing a lesson from it is is valuable. Can I also ask this? Because this was a pattern I was finding myself when I would speak to past experiences that didn't go well or my regrets, instead of just sort of chronicling them or telling them, I would relive them. And mm. in doing that, it was it became a heavy, heavy thing that yeah. I was like, well, I don't want yeah. to talk about it anymore because I'm literally yeah. bringing myself back to 17 yeah. years ago. And this is not a healthy place to return. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So exactly. it's like regulating that storytelling or that mm-hmm. sharing so that you really are almost like a, a spectator of your life and you're just giving it out there. Because I also find that our memories <laughs> will shape the retelling uh, of any sort of experience or story and factual it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, the percentage as to what actually happened those many years ago, because it's it's become a new story every single time you tell it. Did you also find that or was it just me? Yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, it wasn't just you at all. But but this you, that's, a, that's actually a very vivid description, I, I think, of a certain form of wallowing. There's a way to arrest that. And, and this is the process that, that science tells us about how to deal with our regret. And I, and I think that, that the process can actually be really helpful in arresting the march to that point. The way I look at this process is inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward. So inward, how you frame the regret and your own mistake is incredibly important. And one of the things that we see is that the way that we talk to ourselves is brutal and cruel, mm. um, absurd. In, in comparison, to, we, we talk to ourselves in ways we would never talk to anybody else. And, and there's actually a pretty easy remedy for that. I mean, you guys, you guys certainly know the old joke about a guy goes into the doctor's office. He says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor don't says, do that. don't do that. Right. Don't so that's this. the solution there. Don't do that. Don't talk to yourself like that. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Your listeners might be interested in the whole line of research on what's called self-compassion which was pioneered by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. And, and essentially says, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. So that's that's the first step. The second step, and this is actually really interesting, is it is talking about it. Um, disclosure can lift the burden, 
But the other thing that disclosure does, whether we talk about it or write about it, is this, and it's extraordinarily important, that emotions by their very nature, emotions by their very nature are amorphous. They are abstract, right? And that's what makes positive emotions so delicious, and it's what makes negative emotions so menacing. Mm -hmm. And so with negative emotions, you can take some of the menace out of it by writing about it, by talking about it, because you convert that blobbiness into concrete words, which are less fearsome. And so mm -hmm. that's an important step. But I think what with, with you, uh, Stephanie, what, you got to get to the final step here, too, which is to extract a lesson from it. So how do you do that? You do things like goofy things like talking to yourself in the third person. Um, you can do things like um, one of my favorite techniques is to essentially play, as goofy as this sounds is to place a phone call to the U of 10 years from now. The U of 10 years from now knows what to do. Yeah. yeah. The U of 10 years from now is looking out for your best interests. So and, it's and, putting yeah, that think, like retrospect point of view into the present almost. Right. Exactly. It's part of exactly. It's part of our again, regret hinges on our our brain's incredible ability for time travel. So use it to your advantage. Yeah. The U, we have a pretty good sense of what the U of 2032, 10 years from now, is going to care about. And that U of 2032 has your best interest in mind. So place a call to her. You know, another technique for self-distancing is probably the best decision-making technique that there is, is that if you're deciding what to do, ask yourself this question, what would you tell your best friend to do? Right. right. And people always know. We're terrible at solving our own problems, um, but we're pretty good at solving other people's problems. So essentially, you have to pretend you're somebody else. Um, and so what you have to do is you treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You disclose to make sense of it. You extract a lesson from it for next time. And, and if you go through that process, you don't get stuck in that infinite loop of rumination. Or you're less likely, you're far less yeah. likely to get stuck in that infinite loop of rumination. Do you find that our brain or L brain thinkers handle that process differently or one is uh, more effective than the other? It sort of goes to what we were talking about earlier. Like what I don't want people to do when confronting a negative emotion is always try to figure out what to do. I'd rather have them go to a simple recipe. If you if you go to that simple recipe before long, it creates a habit. Right. So you're not doing it. You're not doing it explicitly and consciously. You're doing it implicitly and, and unconsciously because you've learned how to you've learned how to cope. And, yeah. and that's that's how we learn. We learn things in that pretty reductive way, but then we absorb them so they become habitual. And as they become habitual, we begin making tweaks so that they become better reflections of who we are. The problem is with negative emotions, including our most common negative emotion, regret, nobody teaches us how to do that. We're leaving people to spin. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. When you spoke to these thousands and thousands of folks, was there any sort of uh background as to their belief system, their spirituality. I have a That's real complicated relationship with, well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Sometimes it is a great salve to me. And sometimes it is something where I look at the world and go, how can all of these atrocities and pains, whether they're personal or again, thinking on a global level, how can all of these have some sort of meaning. And I'm wondering if the moving through or the understanding or the releasing of regret had any sort of tie with that sort of belief system or spirituality. It's a great question. So so I also did a quantitative survey. So so what I did just for your readers to have some background and 
you know, because I think that anytime anybody is making a claim about anything, you need to be generously skeptical and ask that, ask the question of how do you know? So how do I know these claims that I'm making about regret? There, there are three ways that I know. One is that I looked at about 60 or 70 years of academic research from social psychology to developmental psychology to neuroscience about regret. The second thing that I did is I did the largest um, public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. We did a, a very rigorous public opinion survey of 4,489 Americans, asking them a whole bunch of questions. And then I also collected these insane number of regrets from around the world. Now, so so go, let's go to the second leg of that stool, which I think answers some of your question, because I was trying to get at that very, very issue. So one reason we had such a large sample was to look for demographic differences and we found relatively few. One demographic difference I wanted to look at was belief in God. Does belief in God shape your your views on regret? And so we asked the question, do you believe in, you know, uh, giving people three answers, I believe in God, I'm not sure there's God, I don't believe in God. And uh, we found no correlations, partly because in America, wow. everybody believes in God. Uh, not everybody, but huge majorities of people huge believe majority. in God. Huge majority, yes. Huge majorities of people believe in God. And that showed it, so empty set nothing no 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 insight there however exactly to your very words stephanie i asked two other questions and forgive this long-winded preamble here but there there'll be, there will be a point at the end of the at the end of the rainbow here first was we asked people a question about free will do you believe in general that people have free will that they have control over their choices etc cetera, etc cetera? and we found that i think it was like 80% of people said they had free will okay right. So I so, so that's good. So I wanted. So I also asked the opposite question elsewhere in the survey. I said, "Do you think, in general, in life, everything happens for a reason? The opposite of free will?" And we found that about eighty percent of people said yes. So now there's confusion between the fatalism and the self determination. So when you when when you ask that question, you know, does everything happen for a reason? Well, yeah. I mean, if if my tire goes flat, one of the reasons is I ran over a nail or I didn't put air in it, or was that predetermined that by the gods that my tire should go flat so that I avoid the accident that happened on the highway that I would have been in had my tire not go flat. So I think people get really confused about if it is it fatalism or is it self determination. Is it your own actions that feed into the fatalism? That's this is so exactly what this is exactly what we found that there is there is something that and this bugged me for, you know as a rational guy this bugged me there was this contradiction but I'm wondering whether there is exactly as you're saying Mary Lee which is that overwhelming majorities believe that they have free will and that things happen for a reason yeah it's both and it's both and so yeah. that may be less of a contradiction than we than we think mm. and in fact one of the lessons of life one of the lessons of trying to figure out how to make it through each day, uh, you know, in this, in our imperfect selves on this imperfect planet is figuring out what do you have control over and what do you not? And wow. you have control over some things, you don't have control over other things. And you got to try to figure that out. I'll, I'll see you and raise you on storytelling here. <laughs> so Dan McAdams at, at Northwestern University, he's a personality psychologist. He has a theory that says that we forge our identities through narrative. And I think that's interesting. And I think it's largely accurate. But when we think about our lives as narratives, we have to ask the question, you know, are we in these narratives? Are we the author or are we the character? Right. And the answer is yes. Right. 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 Part of life. Part of life is teasing that out. And yeah. there isn't an easy answer to that. It's not a math problem. It's not two plus two equals four today. It's going to equal four to uh, uh, 10 years from now. But if I say, what do I have control over and what do I not have control over? My answer today, my answer 10 years from now could be wildly different. Yeah. 
And I think you talk about that in a whole new mind is that the way we learn is through storytelling, that that people retained so much more when they were given the facts in a story. Oh, I think yeah. that was in a whole you, new mind. You gave yeah. us a pop quiz in the middle of that book. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you hypocrite. <laughs> you told me this was going to happen. And then sure enough, it was to make the point that, you know, we're not going to remember the facts, but we will remember the stories. And yeah. also you spoke of um, uh, a hero's journey. We are, we're co-creators in that life, but we're also the leading player in that life. And so- I wanna come back to the, the reigning theme of this conversation, which is that, it, that it's both and. Like that, yeah. is that everything we've been talking about is both and. And even when we talk about facts and stories, stories have facts. I mean, stories are, stories are facts delivered in context with emotional impact. Right. So it's not like stories are devoid of facts. Stories have facts embedded in them. It's both and. It's the yin yang. You can't have one without the other. It's the perfect yeah, balance. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, but that's what we all strive for. We're talking about it, Mr. Rational Guy, like this is the way <laughs> things happen. But this, this idea, <laughs> this concept, we're all constantly, that's the goal, the yeah. balance, the both and. We're all trying to figure this out and we're not going to get a clear, unequivocal answer to these questions today or tomorrow. That's what life is. Life is Maybe 2032. When I but say, hey, girl, hey, you did it. You are the most balanced, holistic lady yeah. I've ever met. But, you know, that's why I love your books. That's why your books are so important, because they take big, you know, big themes. They break it down into storytelling so that it's digestible for everyone. There was one other thing in your book that really struck me that I just loved. And it was that the, the core regrets work like a negative. So if we look at our biggest regrets, it's really when we develop it, it's a picture of the things that matter the most to us. And totally. that's how you find the thing that means the most to you. I just thought that was such a great thought. Well, I mean, that's the great thing about being a writer is that you end, if, you, if you show up and do the work, you end up getting surprised and you end up finding yourself in places that you didn't expect to go. And so when I, you know, to, again, for some background for your listeners, these, what I just determined after looking at these thousands and thousands of regret is that around the world, people had the same four regrets. There were foundation regrets if only I had done the work. So those mm -hmm. were regrets about spending too much and saving too little, about not taking care of your health, about doing things that compromise the stability of your life. There were boldness regrets if only I had taken the chance, right. which was everything from not traveling to not starting a business, to not asking people out on dates, to not speaking up. There were moral regrets if only I'd done the right thing which was oh, gosh. makes perfect sense. And then also there were connection regrets if only I'd reached out, which were about the relationships in our lives and the pain we feel when we let them drift or come apart. And um, and exactly as you're saying, you know, the, when people were telling me there, when people tell you their regrets, they're also telling you what they value the most. Yeah. Uh, the things that stick with us. If you ever, if, if something lingers with you for 20 years, it's a signal from your brain that this matters to you. Yeah. And what matters to people are these things. What do we want out of life? We want some stability. That's foundation. We want a chance to live and grow and lead psychologically rich lives. That's boldness. I think I'm convinced that most of us, almost every one of us, want to do the right thing in most cases. Yeah. Um, and that a good life is also a moral life. Mm -hmm. And what and what and connection regrets are all about love. And not just romantic love, which I think we, we spend too much time fixated on romantic love and not enough time thinking about love in the broader sense of the love we have for a whole array of people in our lives. Um, and that's what we want out of life. And so, you know, so you would think that, that, that reading through these thousands and thousands of regrets would sort of bring you down, but it, it actually didn't. It lifted me up because it's a chorus of people telling you what they matter, what matters most to them in life.
doing your research. What about that outside source? You use the word moral regret. And we, you know, again, we can get into this heady conversation about is right moral? Define right, define moral, define good. Do you find that outside forces and how people view other things about what is a quote unquote exciting life or fulfilling life or moral life? Did that inform a lot of people? Or do you feel like if we were to have this conversation 30 years ago, before Mm. the growth of technology and social media Mm -hmm. and us having access to so many different uh, cultures and ideologies and methodologies that this conversation would look completely different? It's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I think that I think that that there there's sort of two different questions there. The first one, the the second one has to do with whether um, in, in some ways sort of whether over time these core regrets are different. And I don't know, my guess would be probably not, but the, mm-hmm. but the way that they're expressed is different. So just our whole notions of boldness, being bold in, being bold in 1850 meant so, means something very different from being bold in 2022. Right. Sure. Being bold in 18, being bold in 1850 might meaning, might be escaping from your enslavement. Right. Um, it might mean moving to the adjoining town right. rather than living in the town where you were born. Or holding today, one's hand without a chaperone, like it can go that exactly, big or exactly, that small. Exactly, right, exactly, right. exactly, exactly. But I still think that quest for boldness and growth is is, is was there. It just expressed itself differently mm-hmm. in that kind of historical context. Yeah. Um, the the other part, the first part of your question, really is about. It's a really interesting one. It's actually a really important one, which is that I actually think there is. Again, if we're bounded by the historical moment a rough consensus on what it means to be bold. Um, I, I think that most people would say that being bold is starting your own business, not staying in a lackluster job. I think that being bold would be asking out someone you like rather than not asking somebody out. So I think there's a consensus on it. With morality, that's a different kettle of fish. And there's some very, very good, there's some very, very good research on this from John, John Haidt and others showing that we have some consensus on morality uh, in that, we generally agree that we shouldn't harm people, we shouldn't cheat people. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to other moral duties, there isn't a consensus. So I'll give you, let me make it concrete. I have a lot of people, Americans in this survey, who regret not serving in the military. And mm-hmm. the reason they regret not serving in the military is not because they miss the adventure, but because they felt that they had a duty as a patriot to serve their country, and they didn't do that. And that is absolutely a moral regret, but it's not one that everybody agrees is a moral regret. Mm, um, right. we, we have, a, we have. I mean, again, not. To, let's get even less controversial. Let's talk about abortion. I have plenty of people in the database who regret having an abortion. Now, I don't know. I have no. I can't make any claim about what portion of women who have abortions regret it. I have no idea. I know that the answer is more than zero. You know, we have different views on, on, on that kind of level of sanctity. So you're exactly right that, that on, when it comes to what's a moral regret, you have to leave it up to that individual. If Maria has a regret about never serving in the military because she felt like she didn't do her duty for her country, and Fred says that's ridiculous, that's not a moral regret, Fred should shut the hell up. Right. Because it's, it's Maria's, it's Maria's, and if Maria says to Fred, you should have that regret too, Um, He should say, shut the hell up, Maria. Shut up, Maria. Uh, You know, what I wonder is because there's such a decline in organized religion now, I wonder if Mm. 
if there's a correlation in the decline of that organized religion that sort of kept people's moral compass in line through whatever methods they used with that going down, I wonder if there's an increase in regrets of that nature. Hmm. I don't know. Moral, moral regrets were the smallest category. Uh, so there, so that's I, surprising I think that's, to me too. Because I think most people generally do the right thing. I think the effect of organized religion is somewhat different in that organized religion, I think, does a pretty good job, a better job than secular society of helping people contend with negative emotions. Oh. Um, you know, so so you have in, in Catholicism, you have, I mean, Catholicism has a mechanism for dealing with regret. It's called confession and repentance. That's right. uh, Judaism has a mechanism for dealing with certain kinds of regret. It's a day of atonement, you know, and, and if you even think of other negative emotions that we have, negative emotions are extremely valuable to us. Well, we shouldn't wallow in them. They, we should have more positive emotions than, than negative emotions, obviously, but negative emotions teach us. Think about the negative emotion of grief. Do you want to extinguish feelings of grief? Do you no. want to live in a world where nobody ever feels grief? No, because grief, the reason we feel grief is because we feel love. Right. And so a world without grief actually compromises love. Now, every religious tradition has mechanisms, rituals, processes, For ways grief. of contending with grief. Mm. Uh, and that's healthy. So, so, so actually organized religion does a better job, of, I think, of helping people deal with negative emotions in secular society. I think that, Mary Lee, is why people are adrift. That the decline of the decline of organized religion, I think, correlates at least with the rise in mental health problems and the rise in loneliness. Fewer people have a ready-made community, nor do they have the mechanisms and processes and rituals to deal with negative emotions. Mm. And, and I'm not saying that the solution to that is that we need to revive organized religion. Right. I don't no, care. But you one need way or community. That's, that's people's choice. You right, need community, community. But you also yeah. you just need to equip people. Here's how you deal with negative emotions. In your book, too, you say that the number of inaction regrets far exceeds the number of action regrets, right? Yeah. So is it safe to say that a lot of our action regrets come from our inaction regret? In other words, huh. we do things because of the regret that we feel for not doing something else. Did you find any correlation in those things? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Well, I think what hap I, I think what we see with the difference between action and inaction is that when we're younger, we we have equal numbers of roughly equal numbers of action and inaction regrets. Yeah. Um, but as we get older, the inaction regrets dominate, and the reason for that is that we can we can deal with certain kinds of action regrets. So let's say we have a moral regret where we've hurt somebody. We can make amends. We can apologize. Try to extinguish that. Mm. Uh, we can try to undo certain bad decisions. Um, we can find the silver lining, as you were saying, you know, I shouldn't right. have married that. You know, I regret marrying the guy, but at least I have these two great kids. Right. Um, with inaction regrets, you can't do that. You can't undo them. You can't at least them. They linger. And I think what lingers with them is not necessarily some foregone amazing outcome, but simply that painful nagging question of what if that's what right. really, that's what really bugs people. Well, going back to your book, A Whole New Mind, I found it so interesting as the mom of a young child, the gentleman who worked for Hallmark and then went into the school systems and, and looked at the artwork and said, oh my gosh, whose art is this? Who considers them an artist? And in kindergarten, 100% yeah. of the hands went up. Right. Yeah. And by sixth grade, no hands went up. Yeah. And right. that to exactly. me also parallels the action and inaction. And I feel like mm. the younger we are and where our 
nurture comes from. We want to enable these young people. You can be anything. You can do anything. I love you. We encourage them. We encourage them. And little by little, just life being as it is, it starts hacking away. It's like death by a thousand cuts. I was way more a go-getter. Mm. I'm going to try. That's interesting. What the hell? Why not? Let's do it. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know whether our brains weren't formed enough, right? Whatever lobe that tells us, <laughs> caution, caution, don't do that, hasn't been formed. So we just go, what the hell? Let's try yeah. to our yeah. ages now where it's a little more like, let's first make a pros and cons list. And I, I, I do see that. I see this little person who's seven years old in my house and her world is so endless. And we know it can't be like that. She can't sustain that for her whole life. But I do find that action versus inaction. Younger people are, I feel, are much more active. That's a big statement, I know. But can you speak to that at all? I mean, I think you might. I think you might be right. Uh, so, I mean, there's a there's a there's a descriptive and a prescriptive. I think the descriptive is you're probably right. I don't know, but I I, I bet on it. Uh, I think the prescriptive is in some ways more interesting, which is that I think one of the lessons from these regrets from all over the world is that we should have in throughout our lives a a, a slight bias for action, um, mm. uh, because for exactly the reasons you're saying that 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 inaction bothers us more over the long term. And, mm. you know, and, and at a certain point we need, we, we, we over-index on our feelings of awkwardness. We over-index on our feelings of risk, I think sometimes. And so I think a lot of times we just wanna have that bias to, to do something. Um, the other thing about that bias for action is that you mentioned the, you mentioned the pros and cons list. And, and we have this notion, I think when we get older, where, in determining what to do, in determining whether to do something, what we do, what the, the, the process is that you sort of figure it out and make a plan and then do it. You understand it and then do. But I, I think there's a lot of evidence, and I think people's lived experience shows this too, is that doing is a form of understanding. That mm. Sometimes the only way to understand something is to, is to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how you learn. And so, you know, so I, I would want to just in general as a prescription, dial down planning a few notch notches and dial up acting a few notches and i the think the lauren that michaels a, theory on it's time let's just let's jump. yeah yeah well that's just that that's that that's really just like that's that's sort of an antidote to perfectionism um you know just like get it done you just like it's time yeah. uh, but i th i just think that in general like we we it's a, i mean it's interesting it's maybe it's another form of wallowing that we sort of when we're indecisive and trying to th think that the only way i can act is that if i figure out exactly what i want to do and how i want to do it that is in some ways a form of wallowing that prevents you from taking action. So I just think as a recipe for life, two notches down on planning, two notches up on acting. Is That's a, a great lesson. Principle. There's a, a theory about mirror neurons and making decisions too, where they say like bonding with the mom when you're really young creates the mirror neurons that help you make decisions throughout the rest of your life too. So I think that's part of decision-making as well. It's, it's, with, sure. What I do you mean, mean our offspring with our kids? Yeah, yeah. There's a study, yeah. I think it's Eric Mandel, or I'm not sure of the person's name, but there was a whole study on that. Hmm. Sure, sure. I mean, that's, I mean, that's how we, that's how we learn to understand what other people are thinking and what other people are feeling, which is a hugely important part of getting through the day. Yeah. And most of us are not very good at. You can tell me to shut the hell up, Stephanie, but <laughs> what voicemail message are you leaving for yourself in 2032? Ooh. I look at that as a way to make way, way to make decisions, and I think it's pretty clear what I'm going to care about in 2032, and it's not going to be very much. 
Mm. It's not going to be whether I wore my green running shirt today or my blue running shirt today. It's not going to be whether I had um, pasta last night for dinner or I had meatloaf. You know, uh, the me of 10 years from now is going to give a crap about any of that stuff. We know from these regrets what I, I think I know what I will care about, which is did I reach out to people I care about before it was too late? I think I'm going to care deeply about that. Uh, did I do the right thing? I think the if I don't do the right thing today, the me of 2032 is going to have is going to be a little bit pissed and want to have some words with me. Did I do what we were talking about before? Did I have that bias for action? Did I take that sensible risk or did I hem and haw and try to avoid doing that? The me of 2032 wants me to take that risk. The thing about regret is that it clarifies and it instructs. It clarifies what we value and it instructs us on what to do. And so if I take the clarifying of function of regret. It's telling me 10 years from now, there's very little I'm going to care about, but I can make a strong prediction of what those things are. So do those things today and just chill out about everything else. And now our five questions. I step into your closet. Is there a garment or any sort of uh, piece of clothing that holds such memories that you will never get rid of? The suit in which I was married. If you could have any power or ability, superpower, natural ability, anything. If you just wake up with it tomorrow morning, what would it be? I, the first thing, the first thing that came through my head was a great three-point shot. But, um, <laughs> not, that's probably not that exalted, but that's the truth. Okay, now instead of looking to like forward, Steph Curry, Steph Curry's skill in three-point shooting. All swish, all swish. Um, you look back at your 19-year-old self. What advice are you giving him? Uh, get over yourself and stop caring about what other people think. Okay. You've been kidnapped. You have one phone call to ask for help without asking for help. You have to let your spouse know that you are in trouble. What do yeah. you say? I don't have that. I, I don't have that, that, that coded phrase, but now I feel like I urgently need one. <laughs> <laughs> you do. And do also you? what yeah. I learned from Mary Lee's husband, who is an extraordinary guy. Anyway, uh, if you are in a place that is perhaps could be war torn or whatever, you always have bacon in your pocket so the dogs can find you if the building does go down. He worked in Colombia for many years and he said, you know, I'd wow. eat a dinner and my my hotel would get bombed. So he used to put his leftovers in his pillowcase so that if anything collapsed on him during the night, the, the dogs, dogs would, would find him out faster. That's brilliant. Huh? These are all helpful hints, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Great safe day. Okay, last question, which is truly the most difficult to answer. If you were a nail polish color, what would that be? And what's the cheeky little name? Oh, I think if I were a nail polish color, polish color, it would. that's an easy one. It would be, <laughs> it would be Daniel Pink. Pink. <laughs> That's what I figured. Yeah. You surprised me, Mr. Rational. See how creative and amazing you are. Yeah. Thank you so much for this morning. We really thank appreciate you. it. <laughs> thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you for this book. I really enjoy it. I enjoy it. Sure thing. I really thank you do. for the conversation. Really Be well. Care. I'm going to go get some, put some bacon in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after a word from our sponsor. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that gives you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. 
It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages, and love where you are now. There are so many engaging, smart people yeah. out there. Yeah. What I admire about him and will try to emulate is the the balance of information, level-headedness, true study, like in the field study, his uh, scope of emotions, trusting his experiences. That was, uh, it was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. His book, A Whole New Mind, really was... Um, a big influence on me. It was great because I felt like I could understand my own brain, my own mind better, which then helped me, of course, to understand my child's brain and mind better as well. But what I really like about his work, what I admire so much is that he takes these huge subjects, which could be very dry, and he fills them with narrative and conveys the information in a way that it becomes accessible to everyone. So tell me, do you have a regret? Certainly. There are things that were left unsaid Mm -hmm. and the person is no longer on earth. And that will Mm -hmm. always sit with me, how that could have changed the trajectory of my life or their life. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, I I agree with, I don't have a lot of, um, oh gosh, I hope this doesn't sound uh, too righteous, but I don't have a lot of moral regrets. I feel like I I'm not rash in that way. I don't just uh, go toward what's going to make me feel good. Mine, 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 mine. I do try Mm -hmm. to take into account how this will affect others and what is the larger picture for this particular action. Um, And I have also been very conscious about not putting myself in certain situations where the outcome more likely than not is going to be uh, something that I'm not proud of, or I wouldn't be mm-hmm. able to, when I was younger, look bold face in my parents and say, this is what I did. Right. Mm-hmm. If I knew mm-hmm. there was that nagging feeling mm-hmm. going, you're not proud of what is about to happen with your group of friends, or mm-hmm. yeah. I would remove myself. I really yeah. would. I actually but- say that to Seb often. Look, of course you're going to go and you're going to test the world and you're going to do stuff, but try to think what would my parents think? That's all. Yeah. Just try to keep that in mind in yeah. the back of your head. <laughs> yeah. Now I want to go back. Have I made terrible mistakes? Have I hurt people in my life? Of course, but it was never predetermined it, it was or never malicious or yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's sort of what we say a lot on this podcast, which is, um, you know, just say yes, just try yeah. it. Just if yeah. it's, if it's a reasonable risk, why not just right. do it? You're not doing harm, like detrible harm to you or others. Right. Try just, it. just try yeah. it. Just say yes. Yeah. Yeah. And pay attention along the way. So that like he said, it's the inward, outward, and then moving forward. Right. So if you don't learn the lesson, the moving forward is going to be difficult and you're just going to be on repeat with that inward, outward, inward, outward. And that wallowing is not going to get you anywhere. One thing I did want to ask him, which was so self-specific. So I didn't, I find myself perhaps not balanced right brain, left brain, but I do find myself with the head in the clouds and the dreamer and the designer and the artist, but yet 
when it comes to little things, for example, I'm in third grade, Mrs. Harner's class, and we're learning multiplications. And what you needed to do was do your zero times tables, and then you move on to one and two. And you do this not based on a test that happens every week, but you do it when you feel comfortable and then you progress. I stayed on the zero times tables for, I don't know, several weeks because I kept, she's like, what is zero times three, Stephanie? And I'd be like, I know you want me to say zero, but there are three zeros of something. There'd be nothing on the paper if you weren't telling me there are three zeros. Then there's three of nothing, but there is something. There are three zeros. So there's something. That's so interesting because that's, I don't know if that's left brain. I think that's right brain. Is that right brain? Creative, expansive. Like I can imagine outside of what I'm supposed to know, the linear is the row of zeros, I think. So, So the same thing for me. I cannot take a multiple choice test when no. I was a kid. Couldn't no, take there's it. too many other factors that are involved. Exactly. The question is too vague. I could make any one of these answers work if this were true. And if this were true, then of course all of you. And that's right brain. That's that outside the box. Yeah. See the world in a tilt. That that's, that's You want to torture my husband? Give him a magazine <laughs> test or like what personality are you? Or, you know, what sign matches your sign, your astrological sign the best? And he's like, oh, this is absurd because, you know, what yeah, time? I mean, day? I mean, really? Yeah, it depends. What did I have? Well, how do I feel right. at this moment? What happened yesterday that influenced it? Did I know but, this but person that's... before? Have I just met this person? So this is exactly what I was saying, though, when when we came to the question of does everything happen for a reason? Right. Right. There's a million ways to look at that question. Right. There's a reason because of things I did do, things I didn't do, things that, you know, if you believe in in a a predestined uh, fatalistic view, there's too many ways to look at it. That's right. Yeah. That's how I, I do that with so many things. It's ridiculous. Tell me your regret or not. Um, Do you have one? Oh, I, I, I shouldn't have, assume. I have little regrets, of course. Yeah. What if I look at most of my regrets over time, what they boil down to is not knowing myself better when I was younger, hmm. understanding why I did or didn't do things and taking control of that. I think you need life in order to understand yourself better. If you're not put in certain situations, right? You can't even conjure up or fathom what that looks like. You have to be in that situation again, learn from it and say, aha, that's how I handle that. That's who I am. This is who now I want to become so that if ever faced with a similar experience or occurrence, then, and that's what I think makes us us. Yeah. And I think I have more inaction regrets than action regrets. Like most people, I don't think I've, I mean, there are things I have done that if I were going to go back, I'd be like, "Mm, I wouldn't have done that the same way again. But that idea of um, negative emotions that he kept using that phrase. And I, I have been hearing it a lot in other podcasts and conversations and, you know, circles with mothers. And I do find it, it is wildly important to not have those negative quote in quotes emotions take over all the joy and happiness and discovery and play. But it is so important to say, yeah, okay, that's all right. You cry. Yeah, that's okay. Look at mama crying. Mama's having a terrible day. And to just know that all of those, all of that disco ball, all those different little squares in the disco ball truly make us 
us Mm -hmm. and how the light refracts off of that. Even the connotation of negative emotions makes me heavy. It's just a part of the whole human experience. Right. And allowing labeled as something bad. It's it's actually just, it's just, it is what it's a neutral thing that you can take from and learn from to make this like about a a yoga kind of concept. Um, there's this, it's Shiva Shakti, which is the male and the female. So at the beginning of the time, Shiva Shakti were one, right? And then there was the big bang, right? Explodes. That oneness breaks up into a zillion particles, which become all of us. It becomes the mm. earth and the trees and the animals and the people and blah, 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 blah. And so our whole spirit is constantly calling for that oneness again. And the whole point to life is to go through learning all the lessons that bring you back to that oneness again. And that's where the chakras come in. So at the base chakra sits that snake, you know, the coiled snake, the snake Mm -hmm. breaks through the first chakra, rises up and pierces all the seven chakras to reach the top where it then gets all the information from above and then coils back down in oneness. And so that's sort of the whole point of life that we're all scattered from the same source in order to learn the lessons to bring us back to oneness and to come together. Yeah. It's, I left like that thought. And, and I think when you look at, back at your life or the mistakes you made or the things you regret or the things you've said yes to, or whatever it is, and you try to pull the lessons from them, as he was saying, you pull the lessons and you pull them with gratitude, which is the key. Um, not regretting what you did, but find the thing that you pull from that, which gives you gratitude. That's how you achieve that oneness back again. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, I like that. Well, that was great. That was great. A lot of thinking. Yes, he used all of my brain power. I may need a nap. <laughs> and then I will continue to pick up his latest book and uh, and continue to read. So yeah. I love you, my friend. Oh, gosh. I love you, too. Thanks for getting such a genius on this cast. All right, my friend. Bye. Bye. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.